Pastor Rick Stevens, and you are listening, of course, to Faith Is. This is the place where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now think about that a little bit. Don't let it just go by too quickly. Absolute confidence. What do we have absolute confidence in? Well, probably not a lot of things. So this is a real challenge. Faith is absolute confidence. Well, if you're going to have absolute confidence in something, what are we going to have absolute confidence in? Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, that assumes a few things, like that God is, well, God, and by the way, He is God, and we are not. You're not, I'm not, nobody you know is God. God is God. And we want to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And God does everything right. There's no wrong in Him. So we ought to be able to trust Him to come through to do what He says. He is not obligated to do what I say or what you say. He is obligated to keep His promises because He has obligated Himself. And we want to learn how to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And that's what we do here on this program. We try to stretch our faith. And as I said, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. We're a church like many churches around our country. We are regular people. We do ordinary things. We uh, don't consider ourselves particularly special. I mean, all people are special as in God's sight. But other than that, you know, we're just folks like you. And we challenge each other. We challenge ourselves to stretch in God's direction. And that's what we do here. We want to stretch toward God's high calling, not be intimidated by anything or even by God's high calling. You know, sometimes God inspires us with something, gives us a great idea, and we start thinking about it and we get intimidated. Oh, we couldn't do that. Oh, no, there's no way we can do that. And we quit way too soon. Well, we don't want to quit here, do we? We want to stretch in God's direction. And if there's anything that I could do to help you think about that differently, I'd like to do it. I don't know how to do that very well. I try as best I can. But I really want you to think about that idea of do we stretch in God's direction? See, when when God inspires us, He doesn't inspire us just so we can say, oh, that's cool. He inspires us to stretch in His direction. We're going to do that again today. And we're going to talk about, well, can I tell you right up front without you tuning out and turning off, hang in there. We're going to talk about sin. Of all of the things we could talk about, why would we choose sin? Well, it's important for us to understand better, and maybe I should say in a more comprehensive way, some things about sin. We're going to talk about that. We won't complete everything we want to ever say about sin today. We'll go over some of it, and hopefully we'll make some good progress that will help us find salvation from, deliverance from, freedom from, you can phrase it in a lot of ways, this whole idea of sin. So yeah, we're going to talk about sin. And I know some of us, I I can hear what you're thinking. Some of us are thinking, well, we're pretty much experts on sin. Why do we need to talk about it anymore? Well, okay, hold on now. I don't mean experts in that way. I mean, we need to understand sin as God helps us understand so we can understand what he is doing to deliver us from evil. We regularly pray, we do at our church anyway, 
the Lord's Prayer. And we ask the Lord to deliver us from evil. Well, that's part of what we want to talk about. How does God, what is the mechanism, what is the way that God delivers us from evil? Because sin is evil. And evil is sinful. So, we're going to talk about sin a little bit. I, I hope it helps. I really do. And my idea is not just to talk about it in abstract terms as much as to talk about it so we understand what's going on. Sometimes when we understand ourselves better and what's going on, we can trust God more to deliver us from that evil. And certainly we're going to talk about the solution to sin, the solution. Now, in a word, the solution to sin is Jesus. In many words, it's more than that. And, well, why not have many words? Well, we'll have many words a little later on. We'll get to that discussion of sin. I want to talk about something from history. We've been looking at that a little bit. It sometimes helps for us to look back so that we can look forward, look back so that we can understand things better, know better how to go forward. I, I want to talk a little bit, bit, little bit, bit, little bit more about this idea of being pro-life. I think that's very important, and this issue is going to come up many places in the country. It already has in some key places, and we need to equip ourselves to have intelligent conversations, honest conversations, conversations that don't resort to name-calling or any of the other stuff that so often happens. But we need to be settled in our thinking about that, and perhaps I can help us with that just a little bit again today. And, and of all things, of all things, I saw a story about a dog. Well, I've always liked dogs. As long as I can remember, I have. I haven't been particularly afraid of them. Occasionally, because sometimes you should be afraid of dogs in certain settings. I remember I had an encounter with a dog one time on my way to school one morning when I was, oh, probably elementary school age, older elementary, but the dog took a little nip out of my lip. And I thought that was kind of unfriendly of him. But even then, it didn't really frighten me a lot. I really wasn't quite sure what was going on. I don't think the dog was actually being terribly aggressive. I think he just got a little over-enthusiastic. Uh, but it was a little surprising to me. But I still like dogs. And, and I have a great story about a dog. A great story about a dog. So maybe we should start there with that story. And, and part of the reason I bring it up is, is because it's really amazing. It's not something that hasn't happened before, but it always amazes me. And, and we need to notice these kinds of things and give God credit. Now, the article that I read about it told the story of a young child. It doesn't say boy or girl. They've kept the child's identity anonymous for obvious reasons to protect the child. But this 12-year-old child was reported missing from his or her home around 5.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. This happened a couple of weeks ago, so it wasn't like just this past week. It happened a couple of weeks ago, and it was in Massachusetts. So it's winter in Massachusetts, and it's cold. The high temperature in that area at that time was 31. The low was 23, so not a time to be out for an extended period of time. But the child was missing, and they didn't know what to do. They reported it to the authorities. The authorities responded with a canine, and not to any of our surprise, I suppose, but to our delight, the canine picked up the child's scent and tracked the child for two miles, a little over two miles, I think the article said, until they found a place where the, the authorities, the police who responded, could identify that there was evidence that this 12-year-old had been there not long before. 
Well, when they came across that and recognized that, they mobilized more resources and officers converged on the area to do a continuous search. And a short time later, they located the child and returned the child to the family safe and mostly sound. I imagine the child was a little shook up, but thankfully the child made it home safely. And a lot of the credit goes to this police dog that picked up the set and tracked the, the child. And you know, those, those kind of stories are always heartwarming when they have good endings and, and you understand that and I understand that and I'm really thankful for that. But as I read this article, it occurred to me that, you know, we think this is great and, and in some respects, and, and I'm a little bit thankful for this, is in some respects it's routine because we've heard these kind of stories before. But do you ever stop and think about the amazement of a God who cares about 12-year-olds that get lost enough to create dogs that have the ability to track children even in cold weather like this. And that dog tracked over two miles to help the police officers that responded to the crisis and help them find that child. Isn't that remarkable? But you know, the article that I read and I guess I'm not surprised by this. It's, it's too bad, really, because this is the truth. The article did not give any credit to a kind and gracious and compassionate God that created dogs that had the ability to follow the scent and help us find a missing child. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of a child being missing. I, I don't, don't really need to take time now, but I was a missing child a little bit when I was a kid. I kind of played games with it, probably foolishly, but my parents didn't, my mother in particular, didn't know where I was, and I knew the police were looking for me, and I avoided them, but that's, again, you don't need to know that story, but one of our children, once we were out in a public place, and all of a sudden, the child was gone. There is no terror like that for parents, and we should give thanks to God for police dogs that have the ability to track the scent, for police officers that have had the ability and learned how to train those dogs to do that and to work those dogs in those very critical situations. Thanks be to God for these gifts. And that's part of what ought to strengthen our absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Does every story like this end well? No, sadly not. God did not obligate himself to make sure every story ended the way I want it to. But I need to give him credit when they do. And I hope you will too. I thought that was a great story. Well, there's another story, and this one isn't a true story. It's a story of fiction. And it comes to us from 1678. In fact, the book that I'm referring to was published on February 18th, 1678. Now, in case you're not familiar with that, that's a day or two ago. And the book I'm talking about is one of history's bestsellers. You may have read it, title is Pilgrim's Progress by a man named John Bunyan. Now, if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. I'm not going to promise you that you're going to think it's the greatest book that's ever been written because I have to confess, and I suppose it's important for pastors to be honest. Well, yeah, I think it really is important for pastors to be honest. It wasn't my favorite book when I read it. I read it with a group of people. We have a book discussion group, and a few years ago, we picked that book, and we read it, and well, I don't have anything against it, but it just didn't resonate with me like it does with so many people. But this one story from it was really fascinating, and I was reminded about it recently, and I thought it ought to remind all of us. 
Essentially, the story is the story of a man named Christian who's on his way to the celestial city. And so he leaves and starts on this journey, and the story is about his journey and the things he encounters. And so one day he was walking along a path, and it was kind of a difficult walk, and so he took a little different route and ended up in a soggy area with what the author describes as poisonous vines. The sky became black, and he ended up spending the night outside, huddled at the foot of an oak tree. Well, that was good, and it was a fairly decent place until a downpour arrived. And so here he is, soaking wet, the black of night, out in unfamiliar and uncomfortable conditions. And guess what? The next morning it got worse. Because the next morning, giant despair came upon him and captured him, beat him, imprisoned him in the dungeon of, wait for it, Doubting Castle. Now use your imagination. This is an imaginative story. So he gets caught in bad circumstances. In this case, off the path among poisonous vines. Sky became black. Terrible blackness settled in overnight. He's out away from shelter. Best shelter he has is under an oak tree. But that doesn't help much because a downpour comes upon him. And he is caught up the next morning by giant despair. Well, we're not surprised. When you go through tough circumstances, that often happens. Well, giant despair put him in Doubting Castle. And isn't that what happens to some of us? We get into despair. We end up in Doubting Castle. And he was trapped. It was as though the walls were thick. He could not see any way to get out of that castle. He was mistreated day after day. He was even tempted to end his life on his quest for the celestial city. Well, the story didn't end there, thankfully, because one evening after he'd gone through all of this despair and doubt, one evening around midnight, he began to pray. A good idea, don't you think? He began to pray. And lo and behold, a little bit before daylight, good Christian, half amazed himself when he broke into a passionate speech to himself. And he said to himself, and this is from the book, what a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am sure, open any lock in Doubting Castle. End of quote. So you see, he came to a census, kind of, in the midst of all this despair, and realized, hey, wait a minute, I have forgotten that I have a key. I have God's promises that should help me escape all of this despair and doubting. And so sure enough, he pulled out the key of God's promises, and he escaped the dungeon of Doubting Castle and the captivity of giant despair. And the article that I read about this referred to Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. And I want to read those to remind us that when we face giant despair or doubting castle, we can turn to God, and we, too, can receive grace to trust Him. Psalm 40, verse 1, I patiently waited, Lord, for you to hear my prayer. 
You listened and pulled me from a lonely pit full of mud and mire. You let me stand on a rock with my feet firm. And you gave me a new song, a song of praise to you. That's from Psalm 40, verses 1 through 3. So you see, we too can escape despair and doubting. And I hope you will. And I hope you do. Because there's no reason for us to remain trapped. There are always going to be challenges in life. Always. But the challenges don't have to get the last word. Can I get an amen for that? Yes, amen. That's right. See, we're going to stretch in God's direction. We're going to learn how to cooperate with grace. And we're going to talk about grace a little bit more, too, when we get into more of a discussion about sin. And we're going to celebrate that God really does come along to help us. Our biggest problem is not God, usually. Our biggest problem is us. And sometimes we have comforters like Job. If you read the story of Job in the Bible and all his comforters, they weren't very comforting. But that's for another time. We're going to celebrate that Christian escaped giant despair and doubting castle because he trusted in the promises of God. And sometimes, more than we think, we need to actively trust in the promises of God instead of just sitting there thinking, woe is me. You very rarely feel yourself out of a bad feeling, but you can act yourself into a better place. And sometimes we need to take action, just like Christian did, in getting out of the doubt and the despair. So if you find yourself discouraged, look for things to cheer you up and lean into them. Sometimes we read those things or we hear those things to cheer us up and we say, oh, that might be for somebody else, but it's not going to help me. And it doesn't. And we think, well, God doesn't help me. Well, you know, that's, that's really baloney. That's a theological term for that's nonsense. Because God expects us to cooperate with the grace he gives us. And even now, listening to my challenge is the grace of God speaking to you, encouraging you to lean into his promise and to trust him and to develop absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. So why not? Why not lean into that? You want to live in the pit? You want to live in the dungeon? Of course you don't. But it's going to require you sometimes to take a little initiative and lean into what God is offering. Because if you don't receive what God is offering, how do you ever think you're going to be better? I guess that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If we don't receive the grace God offers, then we're not going to get the help God is giving us. All right, so that's a couple of things we've talked about. A great dog story that ought to encourage all of us. And we talked about Christian's experience from the fictional book Pilgrim's Progress that you might read. If you haven't read it, you might find a great deal of value in it. Just because it didn't scratch where I itch doesn't mean anything. It just means that's me and you're you and God has used that book in a lot of ways. So why not for you? Well, I want to revisit this idea so that we think clearly on this business of pro-life. It's a huge issue in our country. It has been talked about in so many ways for so many years. The recent Supreme Court opinion that changed the Supreme Court's stance on the whole business of pro-life did not change everything in our country, but it did shift the battle from the national level to the states. And it took away excuses 
and it gave opportunity. And so many states are voting either through their legislature or through ballot initiatives on whether they want to make abortion legal in their state. And we've seen some sad results that states have have not voted the way that would obviously please God and protect life. And so we need to think about this a little bit more clearly. And I came across some information from a, from a book that I have not finished reading, but I'm, I'm, I'm working on. And this gentleman gave us a kind of a three-step argument for why we should be pro-life. And I want to restate that, and then I want to talk about some of the other things related to that. But first of all, he said, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. And you know, I think most people would, would readily and quickly agree with that. Killing someone who's innocent is, is wrong. We don't intentionally kill innocent people. So premise one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Premise two, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. What's more innocent than a baby that hasn't been born? And abortion, the whole intent of an abortion is to kill that baby. And so premise two is pretty straightforward. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. So first premise is it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Second, abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Therefore, the conclusion, because of those two, the conclusion, abortion is morally wrong. And I think if you accept those two premises, you can't come to any other conclusion. And I think if we challenge ourselves to think carefully about that, don't factor in all the other things, think about that first, you have to come to the conclusion that, that babies matter to God, and they need to matter to us. And yes, sometimes babies are conceived under dreadful circumstances. But you know that baby is innocent of those dreadful circumstances. And we need to think deeply about the heart of God and about how God cares about that person. God cares about that person in the same way he cares about you when you've been badly treated. So those are three steps, if you will, three ideas, uh, two premises and a conclusion that ought to help us think clearly about the issue of abortion. Now, often when these conversations take place, somebody changes the subject inappropriately, and we get all distracted on other things. I want to encourage you, if you have these kind of conversations with people, ask the people that you're talking with to seriously contemplate those two ideas and that conclusion, and see if they might possibly have to rethink some of their conclusions related to the issue of life and the issue of preserving the lives of unborn children. Now, the gentleman, Scott Klusendorfer, in the book introduces another idea, or several ideas that I think help us, because people will often argue about various uh, things that are true in a way to persuade us that abortion is okay. And so he offers an acronym, SLED, S-L-E-D. It's a good one for winter. Maybe you've been out taking a sled ride. It's not original with him. It came from a man named Stephen Schwartz who suggested that we use SLED as a way to help us think about some of the differences that people will often bring up to argue for the morality of abortion. And the first one is size. People will often say, well, it's really small, that baby, or they'll say it's just a couple of cells, and we'll get into that, but 
let's talk about size. When you think about size, is there really any determinative value when it comes to size? You know, most third graders aren't the same size as most people who are 24. And does that mean that because the third grader is a little smaller, that the third grader is less valuable than the person that's 24? Well, we would never assert that, would we? And so we need to be careful about allowing people to say, well, an embryo is just really small. It doesn't really count. Well, uh, let me ask you a little different way. If you happen to be the size of an NFL lineman, does that make you more valuable than the rest of us that aren't 6'5", 300 pounds, whatever they happen to be? I don't have any idea if that's even close. But you get the picture, you get the idea. Does size really make us more valuable? I don't think people would sensibly argue that it does. So why would that be true for, a, for an unborn baby? Now, the sec so that's S, size. Second is L, level of development. Well, you know, when you were just forming, when you were an embryo, maybe six months old or less, you weren't really very developed. So you were small, yes, we talked about size, but your level of development wasn't very great either. You were just growing and developing. But does the level of development really determine value? Can we really just kill people because they aren't as well developed as we are? You know, teenagers are growing toward adulthood, but they aren't as well developed as an adult. There might be a, not a lot of difference between the two, but there is difference. There's no question about it. It's physical, and you can see it in their behaviors and their attitudes and all that stuff. Um, we'll dial it back. Is someone who's six months old less valuable? They're less developed than a teenager. So does that make the teenager more valuable than the six-month-old? Well, would, would sensible people really determine value based upon level of development? I hope not. I don't think so. You'll find some people that'll argue for that, but there's no reason to value a human over another human based upon level of development or size. So that's S, size, L, level of development. Let's go to E, environment. Does where you are make you more valuable? No, I live in Florida. Does that make me more valuable than somebody listening who maybe lives in Texas? Well, no. Now, the people in Texas might say they're hot stuff, and I believe they are. But we in Florida think we're hot stuff, and we are too. But you can never really argue that because one of us lives in Florida and one of us lives in Texas in a different environment, that because of our environment, one of us is more valuable. And so how can we say that a baby, because the baby hasn't been born and lives in a different environment than I do or the person in Texas, how can we say that we are more valuable than that baby? See, environment has never been, should never be, a measure of value. So that's size, level of development, and E for environment, and D, degree of dependence. Sometimes people argue, well, that baby is not born, and so it's dependent and it's really not an independent human being, so it doesn't have the same value. Well, let's think about that one, too. All of us, at one time or another, depended upon our mothers for survival. That's what it means to grow and be a baby and be born. We depended upon our mothers for survival even after we were born. So the fact that we are dependent on someone for many years, does that level of dependency that degree of dependency, 
does that determine our value? Okay, I've been a grown-up for a while. Well, mostly grown-up. Some people that know me might say mostly or some. But does my degree of development make me more valuable than a teenager who hasn't developed as much? Or a six-month-old or a third grader? Well, no, none of those things determine our value. We're just different because we have a degree of dependence. A third grader is more dependent than a teenager, and a teenager is more dependent than an adult on his or her own. In the same way, all of us are not as dependent as a six-month-old. Degree of dependence is not a measure of value. So we need to keep in mind that size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence are not determinative when it comes to value of people. So don't fall into some of those traps. I think that this book Scott Klusendorfer wrote, The Case for Life, Second Edition. By the way, second edition you want to get if you, get, you look for that book. is very helpful on this. And I want to encourage us to think clearly about this, these issues of life. They don't have to be emotional. They are emotional because they matter. But we don't have to get all caught up in that stuff. We can talk sensibly. And we need to have settled minds and settled hearts. And maybe that will help you settle your understanding of that. Well, we've talked about a dog story. We've talked about a story from Pilgrim's Progress. And we've talked about this acronym SLED. And I promised at the beginning we'd talk about sin. So we will. And I want to encourage you that, that it's important, again, to understand sin, but it's more important to understand the solution. And we're going to talk about both aspects of that. And I want you to hang in there and to get ready, fasten your spiritual seatbelt, because when we come back, we are going to talk sin. I'm Pastor Rick. Be back soon. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. You've all heard Dr. McCullough and others share over and over the value of keeping your sinuses cleansed. It's a smart move all year, but even more so when we're cooped up inside. It's not really open for debate any longer. Those that live smart and live well pay attention to nasal and oral hygiene. Cofix RX has just the tools for the job with our nasal and throat cleanse. Click the Cofix RX banner on AmericaOutloud.shop to get 20% off your entire order. That's right, AmericaOutloud.shop. Use coupon code OUTLOUD. That's coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off your entire order. Use Cofix RX because it works. ASEA believes that inside each of us is the potential to feel our very best. Our customers will tell you how our products have made a difference for them. From improving immune health and supporting gut health to reducing the appearance of wrinkles and even improving mind, mood, and energy. Make our breakthrough products an essential step in fulfilling your greatest potential. ASEA, we power potential. For exclusive savings, use code OUTLOUD to save 15% off your first order today. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness.
Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death and disability. Lifestyle changes are critical, but you can also support your heart with concentrated nutrients. Healthy Cell created heart and vascular health to support cholesterol and blood pressure with CoQ10, vitamin K2, resveratrol, and soluble fiber. And Healthy Cell's not a pill. It's a patent-pending gel you swallow. Get heart healthy. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 25% off. Well, the year 2024 must be the year of the Patriot and AmericaOutloud.news will equip you with all the information you need to give new meaning to the words Patriot Act. For our actions always ultimately define our words. Now is our time, my fellow Americans. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we stretch toward God's high calling, where we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And I hope you're embracing that idea that we can have confidence in God's trustworthiness and we can discover a way of living that is different, better than we ever imagined. Well, we talked earlier on the program about this idea of sin, and I promised we'd get back to it, and we're going to spend the rest of our time together talking about sin. And that's an important subject, but before we get there, let me just make a time to mention a couple of things. One is, check out the network website, americaoutloud.news. Make sure you go there and look and see what's there. There's a lot of misinformation in the world today. Uh, It is a huge problem. Usually if people are talking about misinformation in the modern media, sometimes the mainstream media, sometimes the legacy media, media, if they're talking about misinformation and accusing someone of misinformation, they're probably misinforming you even in that. So go to americaoutloud.news and see what you might discover there. There's all kinds of possibilities to learn things you wouldn't have realized. So take a minute to do that. Second thing is, in talking about sin, we want to start out by reminding ourselves of grace. Now, I am convinced, I hope you are too, or maybe you're not convinced, but maybe you're hopeful, that we can live above sin. We don't have to be caught up in sin. I don't like the idea. I understand where it comes from. I don't like it. I don't think it's helpful. When people say, well, we sin every day in thought, word, and deed. Well, Okay, I get why you're saying that, but that's really not helpful, and we cannot really live there, because if we live there, we won't grow and stretch toward God. We'll just feel trapped like there's no help and no hope. And I believe that there's a way that God meets us with grace to lift us beyond that. 
Now, let me remind us about grace. Sometimes people think, and this is a mistake, it's an honest mistake for a lot of people because it's been taught this way too much, or if not taught straight up, implied, that grace is just what happens to us and suddenly we're fixed, we're better, we're forgiven, we're okay, we're, you fill in the blank. Well, there's no question that the concept of grace points to a powerful intervention of God. No question about that. There's no question that God reaches out to people in ways that sometimes surprises them. And they find themselves made new, as it were, and they never really quite expected it. Well, that's wonderful. No problem with that. But the concept of grace on its own does not stack up to that kind of continual expectation. Often, we think of grace as something we don't have to do, and so we're not responsible for doing anything. And so being right with God and getting us to heaven is just all on God, and we can just do whatever we want to and more or less ignore God. Well, that's just baloney, okay? That's just baloney. Grace is God's enabling for us to respond to his offer of salvation, to his offer even of grace. We need to lean into that, and I like to say cooperate with grace. If we think of grace as some abstract something out there that just happens to us, we will never, ever take initiative to rise above that. And I want to challenge us to take that kind of initiative and to take that kind of view of grace. Grace is God enabling us to respond to him and to keep on responding. And we can respond to God by taking advantage of what we call the means of grace. Well, let's get into sin a little bit, and then let's circle back to this idea of grace. Now, to start with, we, we understand sin in a lot of ways, a lot of dynamics to that. But I'd like us to first consider what the writer of the epistle of James said. And I'm going to read from the message translation. It's a very good one, particularly on this passage. And I want us to listen to what it says about evil and what it says about sin. Starting James chapter 1, verse 13. Don't let anyone under pressure to give into evil say, God is trying to trip me up. Did you get that? When you're pressured to give into evil, don't say, God is trying to trip me up. And the verse continues. God is impervious to evil and puts evil in no one's way. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. Ouch. Well, that isn't in the text. That was just me. But let's continue with the text. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby. Sin. Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. Well, we can kind of understand that, can't we? But make sure you don't miss what was said here about sin. Did you, did you catch on to that? Let me read that again so that we don't make a mistake. The temptation to give in to evil comes from us and only us. We have no one to blame but the leering, seducing flare-up of our own lust. You see, we get caught up in sin because we are drawn to it and because we want to. That's the idea of lust, right? Okay. Lust gets pregnant and has a baby, sin. 
Sin grows up to adulthood and becomes a real killer. Yes, all of that is right. Exactly right. And we need to take a lesson and learn from what God is teaching us. So, God is not the author of evil. God does not set you up to sin. God is here to deliver you from that and to help you not fall in to the trap of sin. Now, what do we mean by sin? Well, right away, we would immediately start thinking about, well, we shouldn't do bad things. Well, how do we define bad things? Well, the Bible tells us some of those bad things. Uh, in fact, all of them, straight up, by either straight up telling us don't do this or by giving us a principle to follow. So, for example, we know that we are not supposed to lie because in the Ten Commandments, God says don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Well, that's not defined as making a mistake and misspeaking. That's being, being deliberately deceptive. We know not to be deliberately deceptive and lie to the people around us. We just don't do that. It also says don't steal. What's yours is yours, and what's theirs is theirs, and leave their stuff alone. It's not for you to take just because you would like to have it. See, that's that idea of, of you want it, and it builds up in you. You want it, so I'm going to take it. Well, no, God says don't do that. So we understand sin in those terms that it's a restraint on our behavior, so we don't do wrong things or bad things, however you maybe think about them. Both ways can be helpful, wrong or bad. And that's the usual way we think of sin. And the usual definition that I use, and I find it helpful, it's not covering every eventuality, but it's very helpful, is the one that comes from John Wesley, that sin is the willful transgression of the known law of God, which means we do it on purpose and we know we're doing it. It's the willful transgression of the known law of God. And I think that's a very helpful definition of sin in the way most of us think about it and in the way that helps restrain evil. When we know we're doing what we shouldn't do, then we know to stop and don't do it. And if we've done it, we know not to do it again. So that's a very helpful definition. But there's a little bit more to sin than just that. And we need to think about that in a little bit more comprehensive way. And I think that will help us overcome what God has put in what, what God has, uh, how should I say, given us grace to overcome. And, and we, can, we can't overcome. We're not trapped and we're not helpless against sin. God gives us his resources to overcome. So think of sin in three ways. Think of sin as a state. That's what we call original sin, not a state like Ohio, but it's a condition. Sin as state. It's a condition. It's original sin. So that's one way. The second way to think about sin is sin as an act. And that's where I said, when we do something, we know we shouldn't. Or the flip side of that is, when we know something good we should do, and we don't do it. That's sin as well. So that's an act. That's something we do, and we know we're doing it, or we know we're not doing it when we should be doing it. And sin is also understood as infirmity. Sometimes, either we don't know it's sin, or because we are human, we just mess up because of infirmity. We're just not physically able to do everything perfectly every time. It's not an excuse. It's just the reality. And when we kind of understand these things, then it helps us deal with sin as we encounter it. 
and we do want to help ourselves and deal with sin as we encounter it. So let's talk a little bit more about each one of these three aspects of sin, and, and we won't go over everything about them, but we'll give, give ourselves a good start on it. So sin as state or original sin. We've all heard about original sin. Sin entered the human condition when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Okay, and so now we all suffer with original sin. What does that mean? Well, that's partly sin as we experience it or, or sin in the humanness of our nature. It's maybe a better way to think of it is it's when we have a bent towards sin. You know, some people... They, they enjoy an apple, speaking of forbidden fruit, but they enjoy an apple, they steal from their neighbor more. Well, that's sin, because stealing is sin. And sometimes we get a thrill of that. That's a kind of bent toward sinning, a, a thrill at being rebellious or disobedient or selfish. All of that's related to the idea of original sin. And that's how we experience life. We experience these temptations. The other thing that we need to think about when we think about original sin is what causes the idea of sin. Well, two things. One is what you, what you might call disordered love. Often people talk about it, corruption of the moral nature of God. Well, that's a good, or the moral image of God, I should say. That's a good way to think of it. But maybe it helps us more to think of it as what causes sin is disordered love. We haven't loved God the way we should, and so our sin gets all scrambled, our lives get all scrambled, and, and sin results from, from this scrambling that we don't have this proper love for God, and then we would have proper love for our neighbor. So it's this corruption idea that results in disordered love. It's also the absence of the Spirit of God living in us. You know, the Bible talks about when we become Christians that we, the Spirit of God comes to help us and, and lives in us. Well, we can't properly love anybody else or even God without His Spirit helping us. So we're dependent upon God for that. So this idea of original sin is a condition, it's an experience that we all go through, and that helps us understand that we need a Savior. We need help. Now, sin as an act also has some components to it. Well, one of the components of sin as an act is that it's intentional. We do it, and we know we do it, and we know we shouldn't do it, but we do it anyway. It's intentional. Now, people struggle with this sometimes because they think, well, why would I intentionally sin? Well, that's a good question. We could talk about that. But let's first of all acknowledge that we do. All right? Sometimes we think and we play games with ourselves to justify ourselves and say, well, that's just the way I am. Well, I know how you are because of original sin. All right? That doesn't excuse you from being responsible for the things that you do and that you know you do. Okay, so that's the intentional aspect of sin as an act. Now, sin also can become habitual. People can get caught up in things that they do because they do them and they've always done them and for as long as they can remember they've done them. And so it becomes a habit and they might say, well, it's just the way I am. It's not an intentional thing that I'm doing. Well, it is an act that you're doing, and if it's something that God says don't, that doesn't let you off the hook. But understanding that sometimes we get into habits that we shouldn't get into helps us realize how we need to repent and change. So it can be a habit 
Now, habits can be things like addictions, all right, or compulsive behaviors. You know, some people, they react to certain things just every time, or to certain people just every time. And so they become this, this habit and a, and a compulsion. They're always going to get mad. I don't want to put up with that. And every time somebody reacts in a certain way, they, they react in a certain way. And so they have this, this idea of, of a habit, of an addiction to this compulsive behavior. Sometimes people refer to these as strongholds in their lives. The other part of this habitual idea is that, you know, sometimes we just like to give in to temptation. Now, the habitual part comes from original sin. We did mention that just a moment ago. But some of it comes from the fact that at some point in our lives, some of us have just given in to it because we want to give in to it. We give in to anger at our neighbor because we just like being angry. Or sadly, sometimes people will teach us and say, well, anger is power and you need to use that to get what you want and to stand up to nonsense or whatever. There's all kinds of variations of that. But sometimes we we acquire these things because we give in to temptation and we keep giving in and we keep giving in. And after a while, we suddenly realize that, well, this is who I am. Well, yeah, I guess it is, but it doesn't mean that's how you should be. And it doesn't mean that you're excused from that just because you've gotten into the habit of being a sorry rascal and misbehaving. Okay, but that's a habitual idea. And to combat habitual things takes a little bit different approach to grace sometimes than other things. And the other idea behind sin as an act is sometimes we surprise ourselves with the way we do things. Have you ever caught yourself saying something and wondered, where did that come from? Or doing something and wondered, why did I do that? Reacting to someone in a way you know you didn't want to react, but you did. And so sometimes sometimes we're surprised by those kind of things because we're, we're not perfect, we're human. But it doesn't excuse us from being responsible for making those things right before God and sometimes before other people, depending on the situation. So sin is a state, original sin. Sin is an act, things that we know we do. Sometimes they're habits we've formed, but we usually, usually, uh, we always form habits by intentionally doing things. Sometimes we don't realize where they're going to lead to, and we don't like the outcome of that, but habits are intentional things that we just get in the habit of doing. And then finally, sins of infirmity. Well, sometimes out of ignorance, and this is part of infirmity, sometimes we just don't know. We don't know what we do. We don't know how it comes across. And, and you know, the good thing is many of us give each other lots of space on those kinds of things. And we just, we understand that people are just kind of people, and that's just the way it is. And so they don't have a clue that they're acting that way. I'm sure I have acted in ways that I had no clue that people kind of took offense at or found themselves or thought they were being offended by. All, all those kind of things. We can do things because we don't know any better. That's, that's definitely part of this idea of sin as infirmity. And sometimes we lack judgment or wisdom. And we haven't developed the wisdom to understand that. It's not exactly ignorance. It's just we haven't paid attention. We haven't allowed the Spirit of God to form our lives in His direction. And so we lack judgment on that kind of stuff. And because we lack judgment, we just make dumb mistakes. But that doesn't mean they aren't sin. They are just a different 
way of thinking about sin, or maybe we can call it a different category. And sometimes it's infirmity. If, if you've ever been tired and you found yourself saying or acting in a certain way, and you thought, oh, brother, that is not what I want to be or how I want to be, but you know you're too tired to handle this kind of stuff, and so you react or overreact or something, sometimes that's what happens. That's because of infirmity, because we're human, we get tired. Sometimes when we're sick, we're, we feel so bad, and maybe we lash out at someone who's really trying to help us, but because we're sick, we just don't do very well. And it's not something we're proud of, but it's still true. That's what we would call sin of infirmity. Now, what is the solution to all of this stuff? I mean, we talk about this, and it makes sin sound really bad, and, and it is really bad. Really bad. And sometimes we want to uh, we want to deny that it is sin because it is so really bad. We don't want to have to think of ourselves as someone who has sinned because that sounds really bad to describe someone as a sinner. Well, we're all subject to sin. We all find ourselves in a state that's affected by original sin. We all have found ourselves doing things intentionally that we shouldn't do and we knew better and we did it anyway. We have all found ourselves in places where we have reacted and we didn't intend to or we did something and we didn't know any better, we didn't know how it was coming across, we didn't know what we were doing, or maybe we were sick or feeling bad or tired. We've all done those kind of things. The good news is there's a solution for this problem of sin. One of the things we have to come to grips with is how bad the problem of sin is, but how thorough the solution is. And I want to remind us that sin was so bad that it required the death of a Savior. One of the measures of how bad sin is, is that Jesus died for sin, to make atonement for sin, so that we could be forgiven of our sins. So we could move from death, from being, as the Bible says, dead in trespasses and sins, to being alive to God. It took the death of Jesus for that. So that's a measure of how serious sin is. It's also a measure of how comprehensive salvation is. Ask yourself, what sin is so great that God did not solve it when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible says Jesus became sin for us. That's pretty comprehensive. So ask yourself, what sin is outside the atonement of Jesus? Or ask yourself, did Jesus die for every aspect of sin, the things I've done, my mistakes, my ignorance, the fact that I was born into original sin? Did, Did his death satisfy, make atonement for all of that? Well, the answer is yes. It was very thorough. Now, what do we do about it? Well, I like, again, from the message, the words of Jesus, and I want to read those to us from Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. If you've never read them from this, then read them again, and this is, this is where we're going to wrap this up, because I want you to cooperate with grace. Listen to what it says here. Starting in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, from the message. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? See, some people 
have misunderstood some of this stuff and they get all wrapped up and burned out and frustrated and thinking there's no hope for them, burned out on religion. What I want you to take away from this is to lean in to grace. Even now, God is extending to you grace because he's challenging you to stretch in his direction. Even that challenge to stretch toward God is grace at work in your life. The question is, will you lean into that challenge or will you run from it? Lean in and keep leaning in. And we'll talk some more about that next week. But don't abandon grace. Seize it. Lean into it. Live it. Be made new. I'm Pastor Paul.